What's up, collective? You guys, I am so excited to be here with you tonight. Um, I'm so honored that Casey would ask me to be here with you guys tonight. And as I've been here for a few minutes, and, I've, and I'm here now, and I'm standing in front of you, and I see so many familiar faces, and then I see so many new faces, it's just encouraging to see all of the things that God is doing on the West Side, doing at Collective, doing in John Meadows' life. Um, <laughs> I had to. You're sitting right there. Okay, good. Um, and I'm really excited for this passage. Uh, when Casey assigned this passage to me, um, I was like, okay, cool, yeah, Gabriel and Mary, and that's going to be sweet. And, um, but I didn't realize how much this passage was going to bless me this week. And so I'm really excited to just share what um, I think the Lord might have for more of us tonight in this passage. So Casey introduced this series last week, talking about looking at, at different people's perspectives of the birth of Jesus. You guys did Herod last week, and today we get to look at how Mary responds. So let's, let's pray, and then we're going to get after it. Father, I thank you for these men and women, my brothers and sisters. Lord, I thank you so much for the work that you're doing in Collective, the work that you're doing in the West Side, for the work that you're doing in LA, through all of your people, through all of your churches, God. And as we open your word and as we look into the gospel and as we see what the gospel has for us today, I pray that for our brothers and sisters um, elsewhere, God, that, that, that you would be exalted in their lives. God, that you would be glorified. And I pray in this place, Lord, that you would teach us to trust you. We pray it not for any other selfish reasons, Lord, but that we would trust you for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So what if I came to you tonight from another church and I said, collective, I've got some good news for you, right? You might think like, okay, well, you're here to preach the gospel, so you better have some good news. But what if I said that the content of that good news was that God has shown you tremendous favor and in God's favor, he has entrusted you with an incredibly special opportunity, a significantly important role in his plan to reconcile the west side of Los Angeles to himself, right? Sounds pretty good so far. Hopefully that's something that if you're a believer, you recognize has happened. But what if I said to you that God was going to accomplish this thing in you in a way that had never been done before in human history? Never been done through mankind at all. And he was going to do that in you specifically. When the world hears what God is doing, they will be in utter disbelief. And since they cannot understand that it is God who does that in you, since they can't understand that it is God's work, you are going to be accused of wrongdoing. Your reputation is going to be ruined. You're going to be ostracized. You're going to be rejected by the community. Those closest to you will even plan to disown you. And legally, you may even be put to death. How would you respond to the good news? Could you even call it good news? Would you even acknowledge that it was good news? 
This is basically the same message the angel Gabriel brings to Mary. He proclaims good news. He says, you're going to have a son and his name is going to be Jesus, which means the Lord saves. Good news already. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. At this time in Jewish history, the people were waiting for God to do this very thing. They'd been waiting for the promised son of King David who would establish his forever throne in Israel and rid the land of enemies. And we can read about this promise in the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. And in chapter 7, in verses 12 through 14, we read God's promise to David. He says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And the children of Israel, the God's people, they've been waiting for about a thousand years for this prophecy to be fulfilled. And at this point, as the Jewish people in Israel are under oppressive Roman rule, they're longing for the day that God would bring the promised one and set things right. And so here, in Gabriel's announcement to Mary, we see all of these themes from 2 Samuel. They all line up. He's going to be a son of David. He's going to be the son of God. He'll be given a forever throne and an everlasting kingdom. Gabriel's announcement to Mary holds nothing back. Nothing back whatsoever. He says, Mary, you're going to give birth to the promised Messiah, the savior of the world. It's great news. That's incredible news. But we read and we recognize that there must be more to the story because Mary's response isn't to throw a party. Her conversation with the angel gives more insight into what's happening behind the scenes. You see, Mary is a poor, unwed, most likely teenage girl. Most scholars say that she could have been as young as 12 in a very, very strict culture. If she were to be pregnant, she would face massive consequences. Her reputation would be ruined. She could lose her fiance, Joseph. She may never even get married in the future because of her now reputation. She could be marginalized by society. At best, she would be seen a harlot and the son of hers illegitimate. But at worst, legally, she could be killed for what would apparently be sexual immorality. Put yourself in Mary's shoes. And how would you respond to the good news? Mary's response is remarkable. Mary is easily the most famous woman in the history of the world. Easily. Not even a question. Taylor Swift Got nothing on Mary. And she is a hero of the faith. And her response to God's call demonstrates why. Now her response is multifaceted and it develops through the conversation with the angel, but it begins with fear. How do we know that Mary is fearful? Gabriel told her not to be afraid. It's pretty simple. 
Now, we wouldn't normally call fear an ideal response, right? It's not, it, but it's not surprising that this is how Mary would respond. Throughout scripture, when an angel shows up, people usually do one of two things. They either fall down and worship the angel, which incurs a strict rebuke from the angel, or they fall down in terror. And so Mary chooses terror. Our text says specifically that she was greatly troubled Right? She is absolutely not comfortable with what is taking place. Angels didn't make a habit of just showing up all over the place. So we can read the Bible and we can see all the miraculous things that happen and we can see all the appearances of angels. And so we can have this expectation that things were just happening all the time, but we forget the fact that the Bible was written over a period of thousands of years and covered a geography that included parts of four continents in an era where communication was slow, right? If an angel showed up, it would not be trending in 30 seconds. Like people didn't hear about it. This is an uncommon occurrence. They were completely out of the ordinary. And so Mary has every right to be a little bit uneasy. We're told that she tries to discern what kind of greeting this was. Now this word discern, it's kind of unfortunate that it's translated this way. It actually means to take an audit. It's an accounting term, right? She's taking an audit. She's going through her mind, trying to figure out what in her life would be reason for an angel to show up in her house. And you all know what this is like. You've done this before. Most of us have had that moment where you get a phone call from someone who normally doesn't call us right? Maybe it's a boss or a relative or an ex, right? What if it was your doctor? What if you looked at your phone and your doctor was calling you, right? Your mind would begin to race. You'd be like, what in the world is going on? What's wrong with me? What test results did I, I not get in, in the past? Like, and you start, your mind starts to race. It catches you off guard and you try to figure out why they're calling you. You run through the list of possibilities trying to make sense to, before you work up the courage to actually answer the phone. And then it's like a butt dial and it was all pointless, right? But Mary is not getting a butt dial from Gabriel. She's trying to discern why he's standing there. Why is this angel in my room? She's trying to figure it out and it's freaking her out a bit. And her response is not unlike what ours would be if we were in that situation. Angels are terrifying. Throughout scripture, just read it. Everyone, either like this must be God and so they worship or they're terrified. We would be a little bit nervous. And so Gabriel says, don't be afraid. Gabriel's response uh, is super encouraging to me, and I hope it's encouraging to you because it indicates that her fear is not inappropriate. Right? She doesn't get rebuked for her fear. He comforts her. He says, don't be afraid. Right? When unexpected things happen to unsuspecting people, it's okay for them to be a little shook up. So he encourages her. He says, he says don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You found favor with God. There's nothing sinful about being afraid. It's like when, when I'm trying to encourage, I have, I have three boys, uh, six, uh, he'll be five in two days and two and a half. And I'm trying to encourage them to be courageous. I'm trying to encourage them to be brave, to try the new food, 
right? And they're like, I'm scared. And I'm like, you're brave. And they're like, I'm not brave. I'm scared. And I said, scared, being scared is, is a necessity in order to be brave. If you weren't afraid, courage, bravery wouldn't be required, right? So being scared is not a sin. There's nothing wrong with being afraid. It's how we respond to the fear that indicates where our hearts are. And as we'll see, Mary is fearful, but she has tremendous faith. She's got tremendous faith. Even though Gabriel's announcement of a virgin conception has drastic implications for her, she demonstrates incredible faith in that while she's still fearful, she begins to engage. She doesn't run she begins to seek understanding. In her fear, she doesn't run away, but she begins to engage with the news that the angel has brought. She says, how can this be? Because I'm a virgin. Great question, right? Mary understood she may be ancient, but she's not dumb. She understood the birds and the bees. She recognizes that this, this doesn't make sense. Right? We should all ask that same question as we read the text. Right? How can this be? She is a virgin. She understands that this is not humanly possible. So she asks for clarification. Now, this is where we need to understand where we, we can't be misled. We need to recognize that her questioning comes from a good place. Her questioning comes from a desire to understand. It doesn't come from a place of disbelief. Because not every time we question God, is it okay? It's not every time that we question God that it is okay. So we need to recognize what's going on here. And in order to give some context, we need to recognize, if we look at the passage immediately preceding this, it describes angel appearing to another unsuspecting parent, a man named Zechariah. And Gabriel tells him that his wife, who is very old, is going to conceive and give birth to John the Baptist. Not a virgin birth, but one that is still against all odds. And so Zechariah asks Gabriel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife has advanced in years. Again, great question. But listen to Gabriel's response. In Luke 1 verse 19, he says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. The contrast between Gabriel's response to Mary and his response to Zechariah demonstrates that there must be a different motive in each of their questions. Zechariah doesn't believe. Gabriel straight up says so, because you didn't believe. He doesn't believe, and so his question comes from a lack of faith. Mary wants to believe, and so her question comes from a desire to understand. Right? Mary has faith, but Mary will not settle for blind faith, and neither should we. Right? If we're going to have a faith that is powerful to transform us, and impact the lives of those around us, it cannot be a mere intellectual affirmation of some truth. 
It can't just be an emotional feeling. A faith that transforms is going to have to be a holistic faith that involves affections and our intellect and every aspect of our being. It cannot be blind. And so Mary's question is a quest to get to that place. It is faith seeking understanding. Mary is not asking for proof. She's asking for clarity. And the angel's answer is essentially that God is going to do it. Basically just says that God is going to do it. Listen, we could talk for hours about what it means for the Holy Spirit to come upon Mary and for the, the, the Most High to overshadow her, right? But essentially what Gabriel is saying is this is a work of God that he is gonna do in you and nothing is impossible with him. He can open the womb of a barren woman as he did for Zechariah and many other women throughout biblical history and he can even cause a virgin to conceive. There is nothing impossible with God. And with that, Mary risking her reputation, risking her betrothal to Joseph, risking even her very life, submits herself to God. She's got every right to be afraid. She's got every right to be a little bit confused, but it does not allow her to interfere with her responsibility to trust the Lord. She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. We shouldn't assume that Mary understands all that is in God's mind to do. We also shouldn't assume that she's excited about whatever God is going to do. Right? Again, this trust isn't intellectual affirmation or an emotional response. She probably has all kinds of thoughts, feelings, questions, emotions, fears, but it does not stop her from doing the necessary thing to trust the Lord. We need to realize when the Bible calls us to believe, right? When the Bible calls us to believe or to have faith or to trust, right? It's calling for much more than just an intellectual assent or to have good feelings about something, right? The English language has three words that are translated from one Greek word, belief, faith, and trust, all have different connotations in English, right? They each move toward greater submission and vulnerability, right? Think of when I, if I say, I believe you versus I trust you. I have more at stake to trust you than I do if I just believe you, right? So, so they have different connotations, but the Greek word that they're translated from is pistis and it does not have different connotations, it always implies an entrusting yourself. It means that you're giving power away. It means that you're, you're losing something in that trusting relationship. Imagine a child standing at the edge of a pool with his father in the water calling for him to jump and he's afraid and he knows about water and he knows he can't breathe, but he also knows that his dad loves him and doesn't want anything to happen to him, but he's still afraid and so he does not put his belief about his father into action and he remains on the deck. What power is in that belief? Now imagine that child, if he jumps, entrusting himself to the one who he knows loves him and won't let anything happen to him. 
trust is so much weightier than belief. And in the Greek language, there's no differentiation between the two. True belief logically will demonstrate itself in trust. And Mary, this young woman, afraid and confused and and, and incredibly courageous, entrusts herself to God. And her words are insane. She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Collective, I'll be honest with you. On my best days, I struggle to have a fraction of this faith, a fraction of her courage, a fraction of her trust in the Lord. In fact, this week, as I was preparing, I'm gonna stay right here. <laughs> as I was preparing, I was at a coffee shop and, and, and I came to a point where I just had to close my computer and felt the Holy Spirit impress upon my heart. Adam, you cannot teach this if you don't do business with me right now regarding this. And so I had to get to that point to where I said, God, why, don't I, why, why do I like to be in control? Why must I be in control? Why must I know the outcome of everything that you're calling me to before I put my foot in the water? Why do I know that you're trustworthy? Why don't I trust you in these areas? And I had to do that business with the Lord. And I suppose that there's many of you here tonight who have to do that same work with Jesus. I know that you're trustworthy. I know that you've never broken a promise, but why don't I let go of this and give it to you? Mary's response is an encouragement to all of us. Mary's response is a model response, one that we should desire to emulate. Many of us will have a willingness to trust. We want to be able to trust, Many of us have a desire to get to that point where we can trust, but Mary's courage and trust in God should be a kick in the pants for all of us. If you've entrusted your life to Jesus, I guarantee there will come a day when he will call you to do something that you don't want to do. Take holiness required of all of God's people. And as God's people, we have a desire for holiness. We want, to be, we want to grow in holiness. We want to be holy as God is holy. But when we're confronted in those specific, momentary, immediate temptations, we also really want that thing. We really want whatever it may be. So when we're tempted by sex, It's not just some general temptation, but it's at your doorstep. It's within reach. When you're tempted by greed, and it would be so easy in this moment to just fudge something on your taxes or or that, that money is basically in your hand. Or when you're tempted by violence, right? This would be all over if I could just punch this dude in the face. Or power. I can manipulate the situation. I can have control over these people. I can exalt myself. And I have that opportunity. When we're confronted with those immediate temptations, we can say we want holiness, but so often 
We want holiness the same way St. Augustine described his desire for chastity in his book, Confessions, who at a very young age, he describes in his book, he prayed, Lord, give me chastity, only not yet. And we know what that's like. We want holiness, but not in this moment, after this moment. After I do this, then I want holiness. I just need to get this out of my system. We can relate to that. Many of us want to be holy, but we're unwilling to put in the hard work of killing sin. Many of us want to trust in God, but it's hard to deny ourselves, right? We want to be used to do great things for God, but it's so difficult to give up our right to autonomy. We want to come to Jesus to be lifted up, but are we willing to come to Jesus to be brought low? so that he will be exalted. Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow him. He says, come and die. And there is no aspect of our lives that is exempt from this kind of death. There's no aspect of our lives that is exempt from picking up our cross, sacrificing what we want, our desires, our dreams, our hopes, our money, whatever it is to follow Jesus. And until we're willing to lay it all down, We may be on the team, but we're not in the game. We've got a jersey, but it's nice and clean because you never get off the bench, right? You've been casted for the play as the understudy because of your stage fright. You're never gonna get those union dues, right? Get in the game, lay it down, sacrifice, die to yourself and watch God do miracles in your life. And so with one sentence, Mary demonstrates more courage than many of us have had in our entire lives. If you've trusted in Jesus, you will be called to do something that you don't feel like doing. And I believe that right now, that as I talk about this, for many of you, the Holy Spirit is waving whatever that is in your face. This, this relationship this job, this home, this person, this whatever it is, this sin, let it go. It may be something that he's been asking you to do for a while. Will you trust him? If you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus, then the Holy Spirit may be asking you to do something that you don't want to do right now to trust in him for the first time. And you know what? You may be terrified. Good. It means you understand what he's asking of you. And you may have tons of questions. Good. God is is, is incomprehensible. And if you could understand him, he would not be worthy of your worship and you wouldn't need him. You may not know how to trust him. Good. Because you know that you need the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you into that trust. You may feel like your life is too much of a mess to come to Jesus. Good. You understand the offensiveness of sin. And you need to understand that Christ died to save sinners. None of these things are excuses. They're opportunities for God to do wonders in your life.
Mary knows that God is God, right? We can't make excuses for anything that he's calling us to do, even if it's painful. He's not someone that comes alongside us to make our lives easier so that we can get ahead in the world. He's Lord, he's God, he's the creator and the sustainer of the universe. Mary was lowly, poor, impoverished, unwed, no social status, and she trusted in God to be brought even lower. But Jesus, this child that she was to bear, was the eternal son of God, possessor of heaven and earth. And he left it all to be brought low, to become a man, to be born to this poor, unwed, no social status woman. He didn't just risk his life, risk his reputation. He laid it all down to save us. Mary made great sacrifices to bring Jesus into the world, but they don't even compare to the sacrifices that Jesus made to bring sinners, including his mother, into the presence of God. The only reason Mary's faith can be an encouragement to us, the only reason that Mary's faith can be an encouragement to you is because this child that she was to bear became a man. The child in the manger, the child who is wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a feeding trough became the man on the cross. And before he was arrested, before he was murdered, This child became the man who was on his knees in Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, troubled, fearing for his life, trying to discern, taking an audit. Father, if there is any other way, please let this cup be taken from me. If there's any other way to reconcile creation, if there's any other way to save your children, if there's any other way, help me to escape the cross. He's troubled. He's terrified. He's fearful. He despised the cross. But then sounding so much like his mother who came before him, Yet not my will, but your will be done. And then humbly and obediently, he went to the cross. He went to the cross, he purchased our salvation, and he poured out the Holy Spirit on the church. And so greater than Mary's example is Christ's example to us. And now, because of him, we have the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us into trusting God. God's people are called to trust him in all things. Will you trust him with every aspect of your life? Will you trust him with that thing on your mind right now that the Holy Spirit is impressing upon you? Will you trust him with that? Will you risk your life, your reputation? Because Mary was, but more importantly, Jesus was. And now you belong to him. And so we can't withhold from God what rightfully belongs to him. Collective, I do have some good news for you. That you are highly favored by God. If you have trusted in him, you are his adopted child. He loves you. He has tremendous favor on you. 
And as a church, he's entrusted you with an incredible, special, important role in his plan to reconcile the west side of Los Angeles to himself. And this responsibility is awesome. And this responsibility is mind-boggling. And the west side and the world are going to be in complete and utter disbelief. They will not know that it is God's work in you. And because they can't understand it, because they refuse to put spiritual language on it because they refuse to acknowledge that God is involved. You may be accused of wrongdoing, of hate, of intolerance. You may be ostracized. You may be rejected by this community that you are here to love and to show the love of Christ. You, those closest to you may quietly plan to disown you. They may reject you. They may be thinking right now about how much they used to like hanging out with you and then you got serious about Jesus. And now there's trying to hang out with you less. And it may even come, depending on what happens in this world, that your belief in Jesus, your trust in Jesus, your desire to do good, your desire to do something for the kingdom will come at the cost of your very life. You need to know that God's favor upon you and the cost of following him are not contradictory. They are not contradictory. God is good and he does not ask anything of us that he hasn't already given infinitely more for us. As as God's children, let's lay down our lives. Let's allow Mary's words to be a battle cry. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be unto us as your word has said. Let's pray.